You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, there are notes provided in your bulletin, and you can take those out, all of the Bible verses and references and notes and quotes. uh, They're provided for you in those notes, all right? So please follow along. And then if you're watching with us online, um, or listening, you can go uh, and download the version Bible app. That's Y-O-U version. After you download it, if you go to the More tab, tap events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and then click on today's 11 o'clock service. And those same uh, notes, quotes, and references are on your phone that you can save and use for further study. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 And as we continue our sermon series through the book of Romans, I want to preach to you this sermon that I've entitled, Edge. Edge. An article presented in partnership with Nike says, It goes by many names. Mental toughness. Resilience. Clutchness. You can't quite define it. But you know it when you see it. It's what lets athletes overcome a deficit in size, strength, and abilities to triumph over their opponent. It's the marathon runner pushing through the wall in the final mile when every part of their body is screaming in pain. It's LeBron James finding something in the waning minutes of a tied game seven to make the series winning block. The late great Muhammad Ali probably described it better than anyone when he said, the will must be stronger than the skill. What gives these competitors the edge? In the Bible, the nation of Israel enjoyed a privileged status. In the book of Exodus, God called the nation of Israel, the Jews, out of Egypt to be his treasured possession. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul, the apostle, has argued that the Jews, despite their privileged status, have disobeyed God just like the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so on Judgment Day, Jews and Gentiles alike deserve equally the wrath of God. The Jews' possession of God's written law, I remind you, this is the Bible's Old Testament law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. That mere possession of it along with the religious rituals, it made no difference for the Jews when it comes to Judgment Day. So what is the advantage of being a Jew? Being one of God's special chosen people. Do Jews have any edge? That's the question. 
Let's read Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says this, So, what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? That would be the right to be a part of that covenant community. Notice his response, verse 2. Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, I just want to make a note. You're going to see Paul, he, just like a great preacher, is going to say number one, and then he'll finish number two at chapter nine. Okay, So he's going to digress real quick. So we'll pick up the rest of the privileges much later in the book. But the very first thing that we see that gives them an edge, and you can write this down, is this. Number one, they were entrusted with God's promises. They were entrusted with God's promises. It's important to note what Paul says here. Paul, of course, we know he has the vocabulary, the range in words to say that they were entrusted with the scriptures, the graphe, the written word of God. But that's not what the text says. It does include that. But it's even more uh, particular. It highlights a very specific thing. These are the sayings, the utterances. These are God's personal commitments to the people of Israel. And that's why I've called it the promises. They were entrusted with God's promises. But I want us to pause for just a moment before we explore any more of the Jews' promises that they've received in the written word of God. I want you just for a moment, if you have your Bible, just take a look at it. Just look at the thing. Do you see what it is? You cannot be given anything more advantageous than God's word. You can't. Without God's word, you're left to speculate who God really is. We may deduce from nature a timeless, spiritual, unimaginably powerful, personal being, but we can never know God's name. Isn't that amazing? First, one of the, just the privileges of the people of Israel is they know the very name of God. Wow. Only God can deduce, excuse me, disclose or reveal his name to us. Without God's word, we're left to speculate who we are, why we exist. All we have is our own personal experience, but could we deduce from our own personal experience that we have been created in the image of God? I don't believe so. That we live to, we exist for, to give glory to God and enjoy Him forever? I don't think we could. This is all disclosed or revealed in God's Word. Without God's word, we're also left to speculate, how do we relate to God? You understand that God's word says that we are enemies, rebels, hostile in our minds and hearts toward God? Would we really know that without that being written in black and red? I don't think we would. And what about questions about the afterlife? Is there the hope of the resurrection? Is there an eternity in heaven? None of these things we could deduce from our own reason and nature itself. Only God's word can give us the answers that our soul longs for. Do you realize the privilege you have of just having a copy of God's word? And let's take it one step further. In America... With our wealth and technology, we have the ability to access a Bible in five or ten seconds. Even if you don't have a physical copy of God's Word, you can get a digital copy just like that. 
And on top of that, we have it in several English translations. And on top of that, think about this. If you go to Amazon or something like that, you'll see that they've got Bibles in all shapes and sizes and colors with different covers, different kinds of notes adapted to certain kinds of people. We're doing anything to entice people to read God's Word. But did you hear what I just said? You have God's Word. What could be more valuable and advantageous than that? And yet we keep trying to prepackage it for people. Please read this. Shame on us. We have what came out of his mouth. And think of this. If God condemned the Jews on the basis that they have the word and did not believe it or keep it. Ladies and gentlemen, what are we supposed to do when we have this kind of access to God's word? What condemnation awaits us? It is an advantage to have the word of God. You have an edge over other people in the sense that you can have his words right in your lap. That's a crazy notion. But I don't want you to miss the point that just because, and this goes back to Romans chapter 2, just by merely possessing this word, this book, it doesn't mean anything in and of itself. You've got to remember why you have this book. Second Timothy 3.15, it should be in your notes. But please pay attention to this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy. And he says, you know, Timothy, that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. He's talking about this book, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice what happens. This book is ultimately to prepare you to get ready to receive Jesus. So if you read this whole book and do not come to the realization that you're a sinner, that you need to repent of your sins before it's everlasting too late to spend eternity in hell, and that only Jesus has come to save you, to forgive you, to change your heart, to grant you eternal life and pardon, that only in Jesus, then if you haven't seen that in this book, you've misread the whole book. It ultimately points to Jesus and your need and your fulfillment in Jesus. It's so interesting that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they knew the scriptures like the back of their hands, and yet they hated Jesus. And Jesus said, you missed the point. You missed the point. You've been given this book to encounter the living God, Jesus Christ. As mentioned before, simply possessing God's word is absolutely no guarantee that you'll believe it or keep it. But having it is still an advantage. It gives you an edge. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 3. It says this, What then? If some were unfaithful, now he's speaking specifically to the Jews, if some didn't believe and some didn't obey, Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Notice his response in verse 4. Absolutely not. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Here is the edge. Write this down. This is good. Number two. The edge is God's a promise keeper. The edge is God's a promise keeper. See, the Jews' promises with God on their end, on their end, they had failed to keep God's word. They had. That's Paul's whole point 
in Romans chapter 2. But here's the part we have to see where they do have an advantage. The advantage lies in that they have a God who keeps His word. This is the doctrine, write it down, this is the doctrine of God's faithfulness. And this is very important that you pay attention to what His faithfulness is to. His faithfulness is not necessarily to us. This is important. God's faithfulness is His perfect loyalty in being true to His Word. Now if He gives you His Word, then you can be a benefactor. You see the point? But his faithfulness is saying is, if I've promised you something, if I've said something will happen, it will happen. Everybody else's word, when the text says we're all liars, every single one of us, we're unreliable when it comes to our word. No matter what, you can say you're a man of your word, you have to be doing it every single time you give your word. None of us are like that. But God is the exact opposite. Hey, all of us can be liars, God can't be. If he gives you his word, it's as good as done. He has, his word has never failed and it will never fail. But there's something you have to consider when you envision the word of God and God's promises. And this is important as to why Paul quotes a particular psalm. Psalm 51. This is, he quotes Psalm 51 verse 4 when he says that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Now let me give you the context of that chapter, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is King David. Now if we're going to talk about a privileged Israelite, this is King David, right? There's no greater uh, Israeli, right, in existence than King David. King David... In Psalm 51, this is his moving confession of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the cover-up murder of her husband. That's what he's confessing to in Psalm 51. And at the end of his confession, you'll see this, but he reiterates it in verse 4. He tells God, right? God's going to punish him. God's actually, you'll see this, his first, the child that he has with Bathsheba will not survive. Listen to what God say, uh, David says to God. That you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Here's what David's alluding to. He is not just saying, God, you're right to punish me. What he is confessing is, God, you're right to punish me because you've promised to punish disobedience in your word. And I don't get a pass. You see the difference? He's not just saying, God, you're right to do what you want. He's saying, you have promised negative consequences for my own disobedience. And so this is a part of your promises. You're being true to your word. Let me put it this way. I don't know if she's still in here or not, but Scotty. My little girl, Scotland. I nicknamed her Rotland. She lives up to the name. But my baby girl, she'll go, and y'all, it's amazing, right? If you've got a four-year-old, how they can tear apart a room. I mean, just disaster. And so one of the things I do, I try to incentivize obedience. You know what I'm talking about, parents, right? And so I went in there, and you know, I tell Scotty, Scotty, hey, Scotty, if you'll clean your room up, Daddy will give you a quarter. It's amazing what a quarter can do, right? But then you also do this, and if you don't clean your room up, I'm going to spank you. Now, what I want you to see is I've made... Promises. There's a promise of blessing, right? Hey, you get your room clean, here's a quarter. 
But there's also a promise that has a negative connotation. And if you don't, I'll spank you. Here's what I want to ask you. If I do either one, am I being faithful to my promise? Yes. This is what David's alluding to, saying, God, whether you bless me or curse me, whether you pardon me or punish me, whether you save me or judge me, you're being faithful to your word. Y'all, that's a hard thing to accept, isn't it? That when we have, when we think about the promises of God, we think about the positive connotations. But he also means, hey, I'll spank you too. I'll write me down. I'll promise you that, you that I'll do it. So God's word contains both and. Now, God's going to get to, Paul's going to get to God's positive promises for the nation of Israel in Romans chapter 9 and 11. Okay, so there's a significant digression, so he can deal with some theological concepts. And one of the things that he's going to promise is, number one, is that God hasn't given up on the Jews. There will be a remnant of Israelites who are saved. That's clear. And then also, by the end of the age, there will be a great awakening among the Israel, Israelites, the Jews, that they will trust Jesus as their Messiah. So God is staying faithful to them. The part that's amazing is that God can both condemn them, all right, judge them, and grant them grace and forgiveness simultaneously and be true to his word. You see that? I've kept my promises to you. I've given you the blessings and the cursings, the pardon and the punishment, the salvation and the judgment. Now, what does that have to do with us? Right? Here's an important principle you need to understand about God right now in Romans chapter 3. Or the rest, some of it will not make sense to you. And Doug Moo, in his commentary on the book of Romans, it's in your notes. I usually don't give this swath of a quote to put down. But you need to hear what Doug Moo says because I think it will help you unlock Paul's reasoning the rest of the book of Romans. Listen to what Doug Moose says. He says, Too easily do we forget that God's ultimate concern is for his own glory and not for our blessing. This is tough. Churches is tough, I'm about to tell you. God's more concerned with his glory than our blessing. And listen to the rest. That his righteousness is beautifully displayed when he judges... As well as when he saves. We want to quote stand on the promises. I love that hymn. And this is entirely appropriate. You should stand on the promises of God. Good and bad. But we must not forget. That God promises in the New Testament. As well as the Old Testament. To rebuke and chastise his people. For sin. As well as to bless them. Out of the abundance of his grace. The Bible in both covenants includes both negative and positive promises. And what's so hard for us to imagine is this. God does not desire the death of any wicked person. But I need you to understand this. When we do whatever we do, whether we trust Christ or we remain unfaithful, if God saves us or judges and punishes us, it gives him equal glory. That's hard. Hard, but it's true. It's true. God will get the glory from us, whether we're blessed by it or cursed by it. Whether we're pardoned or punished, saved or judged, at the end of it, every created being, your purpose was to give glory to God. You will give it to Him when it's all said and done. You can either be blessed by the experience, 
or cursed by the experience. Think of it this way. Salvation and judgment put us on our knees. Right? We all come humbly. We all come as sinners needing the mercy of God. Hey, but also when we experience his rebuke and punishment, it puts us on our knees too. Either way, God gets the glory. Okay? And this is a tough concept when we go, really, he can receive equal glory with my blessing or the cursing. And and the Bible is unmistakably clear. Yes. Now, he desires to bless you. He actually does. But he'll still get the glory either way. So what should we infer? And this is the reason Paul understands when he's let this principle of God's faithfulness out into the air, right? That God's going to keep his word regardless of what we do. Then a big theological question arises. Well, does what I do matter? <laughs> Listen to how Paul responds, right? Let's look at verse 5 and 8. But, and this is what he's, he's going to argue as an unbeliever for a minute. He's going to say it. But if our unrighteousness, our unfaithfulness, our sinfulness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? Right? And he says, I'm using the human argument. He said, this is not a saved person speaking. He says, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my law, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? Do you you follow the thought? He said, if my law shows God's truthfulness, why is he judging me for being a liar? He's getting glory. Notice how Paul goes on to say it. He says, and why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, the apostles, let's do what is evil so that good may come. And here's his response. Their condemnation is deserved. That's how he responds. He doesn't even reason it out completely. He goes, they get what they deserve for thinking that's what we're saying. Here's what I want you to write down. And I think this is what Paul would give a hearty amen to when it comes to having the word of God and knowing that God will keep his word. Is Number three is this. Don't play with God's promises. Don't play with them. Don't pervert them. Don't twist them. Don't think that God's just going to uh, fudge on it a little bit. He's not. You and I exist to bring glory to God. So if our wickedness advertises the goodness of God, will God still judge us? Yes. Okay? If our sinfulness enhances his holy reputation, will God still judge us? Yes. Should we feel that God is unfair to punish us, even though he'll receive the glory when he does it? You shouldn't. Okay? Why should God condemn us as sinners if our laws point to his unchanging honesty? And Paul just dismisses the point and I said it in the last service. You're just being an idiot. You're being a fool. Do you know who you're playing with? Right? Chuck Swindoll, he put it this way. Here's the kind of logic he says. It's this. If fires and disasters give rescue workers an opportunity to display their skills and bravery... Why not set more fires and cause more disasters so they will have greater opportunity to show courage? Everybody goes, well, no, that's stupid. That's Paul's point. Because here's the point. When you go set fires, hey, there's not victimless people. People get burned, right? And here's the biggest part of our sin. Hey, sin only hurts you. That's God's point. 
I'll receive the glory either way. The issue is what, what's going to happen with you? The truth that our sin results in God's glory is no credit to us. No credit to us. And in no way excuses our sin. It does not. E.H. Gifford points out this way. This is so important. God's righteousness is established not by sin in itself, just by the fact that we sin. It's how he deals with it. Punished by his holy vengeance, pardoned by his grace, or overruled to good effect by his wisdom. Right? You shouldn't, just because we serve a God who can take all things and work them together for good, doesn't mean you need to go out and be stupid and foolish. Right? Because we can just say, well, hey, God will work all things out. He could also punish you and be true to his word. You see, don't play with the promises. Think of it this way. Think of the ways we've justified our sin. And, and I say we because I've done this. We've all said something akin to this in our lives. Well, it's God's job to forgive. You're playing with the promises. God is so loving, he won't judge us. You're messing with those promises, folks. Sin isn't so bad, there's valuable lessons in it. Or we need to stay in touch with the culture around us. We cannot play with fire and not expect to get burned. That's playing with the promises. This same attitude may prevail in the Christian church. We'll say this, no matter what we do as Christians, we're automatically covered by God's insurance policy. The Jews did this by claiming that God must save them because of God's promises to the nation, regardless of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. And that's not what the promises include. We Christians, we do it by believing in a perversion of the doctrine of eternal security. Some people think that they're going to heaven simply because they walked an aisle, raised their hand, been baptized, but they have not trusted in Jesus as their Savior and God. As we said last week, you've put your trust in Christianity, not Christ. I need you to know that if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus then you should have no expectation of seeing heaven. And I also want to encourage you to know, to know this. When we talk about trusting in Jesus, we mean trusting in Jesus for life. Right? We're not talking about where you have this six-month stint of, well, I went to church, raised my hand, went to the altar, pastor prayed with me, I got baptized, then I abandoned the faith. There is no eternal security for you. None. You need to hear that. And I'm not talking about a works-based righteousness, but I'm talking about a righteousness that does work. That when the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and changes our lives, he gives us faith to persevere until we end. And he will help us to bring our lives in greater conformity and obedience to Jesus and his teachings. He will do that. That is the evidence and fruit that we have been truly saved by Jesus. But isn't it sad that we'll rest in something else? We'll, we'll play on another promise of God and go on living in sin. And Paul looks at us and goes, God forbid you do not hear what we're saying. Vito Nati, a student in Barcelona, Spain, was working on a thesis for his doctor's degree. During his research, he scoured the university library for the writings of, I think it's a... a it's a really weird name, Ario, 
an obscure philosopher of the 18th century whose writings had been neglected. After a lengthy search, he unearthed a dusty volume by that author. As he leafed through it, he came to a document written by him in 1741. It turned out to be his will, and it bequeathed all his earthly goods to the first man who would study his book. He must have realized that his work would be unappreciated by his successors. The Spanish court declared the will legal, and Vito Natti collected nearly a quarter of a million dollars from his estate. What edge does God's book bring? Much in every way. God's word strips away our self-deceit and reveals our sin. God's word cries above the crowd of today and screams in the streets, you're not okay. That's a good thing to know, ladies and gentlemen, that the wrath of God is bearing down on every one of us. You're not okay. That's what the Bible says. It's to our great advantage. It's more precious than having millions of dollars, this book is. God's word cries and tells us who we truly are, that we are made in the image of God, but we're sinners. We've rebelled against Him. It tells us who God is. God is holy. He will punish sin, and He is loving. He will pardon sin. And it tells us what He wants. He wants every one of us to repent of our sin and trust Christ alone as our Savior. That's it. And I need you to know this. God will be faithful to His word. Judgment and hell may have disappeared from our lips in preaching, but judgment and hell have not disappeared from God's word, and He will be faithful to them. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, and He will execute righteousness and justice. And what I'm here to do is I'm preparing you to see the faithfulness of our God. Everything in this book will come to pass. And I need you to know, His glory will be revealed, whether it's pardon or punishment. It will be revealed. So the only thing that's left for us, it's really simple, we're at this impasse, is on that day, be found in Jesus and Him alone. Repent of your sins today, now, and by faith receive the forgiveness of Jesus' sacrificial death. And note, His resurrection proves to you that God can save you, pardon you, change your heart, and grant you everlasting life. And that, too, is being faithful to His promises. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Again, I've realized what I've just said in the sense that just repeating some prayer has no saving power in and of itself. But here's what I do believe. That Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He is God. He hears our faults and whispers. And to call on the name of Jesus is to call upon God. Jesus has bled and died for you and rose from the dead to pardon and forgive you. That we can be the recipient of those positive promises, right? And what I'm encouraging you today, I'm encouraging you to confess that you're a sinner. To leave your attitude towards sin behind. Leave it, leave it behind. Those days are done. And to go forward in faith, trusting Christ, and glorifying and making much of Him.
And what I want to do is simply model a prayer for you that you can repeat after me, but it, it means nothing. I ain't talking about sincerity or anything like that. I'm saying this. If you don't really think you're a sinner and that Jesus can save you, this prayer is impotent and it's nothing. But if you trust in your heart what the word of God says, you, you will be saved. So when you call out to him, just call out to him quietly, silently. He can hear you. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner and I deserve hell. But I believe you love me as your word says. You came down for me. You lived a sinless, perfect life. And you shed your blood and died on the cross to erase all my sin. And God raised you from the dead to prove it. Please forgive me. Change my heart. Grant me pardon in heaven. And help me to live my life to glorify you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, here's what I would encourage you to do. The next step in your walk with the Lord you just made a private confession of your sin and the commitment of your life to Christ. The Bible says that the next thing that we do as Christians is we go public with that. And the way we go public is through baptism. When we're baptized and we go under the water, we're showing that we believe in the death of Jesus for our sins. That our sins are dead and buried, gone away. And then when we come up out of the water, we say we identify and believe with Jesus' resurrection of a new life, a changed heart, and pardon and forgiveness in heaven. And all I want to encourage you to do is if you've never been baptized, that's the next step you need to do. Fill out that tear-off panel. Check baptism. Text BELIEVE to our text and church number. Go to our website. Click baptism. Fill out the form. Give us a chance just to communicate with you and talk to you about it. That's all we want to do. The last thing. Stacy begins to play. We have just a time of instrumental meditation, a time to reflect and respond to God's word. I think God's word always warrants some type of response. And so I've, I've been you know, searching over prayers or writing prayers just to, to say over you in hopes that it may reflect what you want to respond to God with today. And this is what I have for you today. It says, Almighty God, we thank you for the privilege of receiving your word and the promises contained therein. Grant us true, sincere appreciation for your word. May we see our sin in your gracious provision, Jesus, in all your word. You are perfectly faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful to your word. Glorify yourself as God. Your judgments are true and right. Help us to never abuse your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Would you pray something along that lines during this time of meditation?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your revelation of yourself, dear God, your holy word. Lord, really help us to to see it for what it really is. Help us to cherish it, to study it, to not give up on it, dear God, when there's times where we just don't get what it's saying. Holy Spirit, enlighten us. Help us to see the truth of your word and to apply it and cause us to walk in it, God. Lord, we do recognize you will glorify yourself as God. It will happen. May we be the beneficiaries of the these positive promises, Father. May we stand on them. May we repent of our sin and begin to trust and rely only upon Jesus. And God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you though that it means when you say you'll never leave nor forsake us, you mean it. You're here now. You're here with us in the worst part of our lives and in the best part of our lives. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, help us to exhibit that kind of faithfulness to your word as well. That we may, we may be blessed by it. Glorify yourself as God. Make much of your son Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, Amen. I've got just two quick announcements I want to share with you. First of all, uh, please RSVP for church by Thursday of each week, all right? Uh, it's, it's, if you want to now, you can, if you turn over to the back of that uh, bulletin on the tear-off panel, there's the next two Sundays are available uh, for you to RSVP. So please do that uh, and then drop it in the wooden uh, box on your exit. You can also text RSVP uh, to our texting church number, 706-525-5351. And then you can also go to our website and click reserve. I'm starting to get these things down faster and faster and faster. Um, the other thing I was going to tell you is when, when we're finished, uh, after Brother Rick comes and leads us in one last song, I do want to encourage everybody to exit as, as soon as you can uh, for two reasons. One, it's better to fellowship outside if we can do that. And then number two, uh, we need to clean uh, the back of the pews, all right? So uh, it'll be uh, very important that you do that and let us get that done, all right? Thank you so much for coming to worship with us today, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. You'll join us again. Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in um, one last song? All right, guys, take your bulletins there. Little is much when God is in it. So let's stand together as we sing all. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.